0: with one mind and one spirit over these events, not only this week, but also this month as well. So would you bow with me, and let's start off with that time of prayer before we begin into our passage. Heavenly Father, we pray. Uh, we pray that you will make yourself present in many of your people today. Lord, even as you witness certain events like this past week, this month, and things even this year even, Lord, we know many of us, many people are asking questions, why? Why there is such evil in the world? And Lord, we know that in your word, it tells us that there is evil in the world because of sin. You tell us that no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. For all have turned aside. Lord, your word also tells us that you have a plan for evil. And though such events take place, Lord, it is not as if you are helpless. But you do plan that one day, as your word says, that there will be a day of justice. And that evil will be wiped away. And though we wait and we wait for that day, Lord, Be let us be reminded that for you, that one day is a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. Until then, help us to repent. All people, when they see the reality of evil in this world and the reality of sin, when they ask questions such as why, may they consider who put that question there. To realize it is you who put the idea of justice, of good, and truth, and love in the hearts of men and women. And God, as a result, may more people come to you in the gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we'll continue in our series in the book of Acts. And we're going to continue the same narrative that Pastor Charles preached from last week in chapter 4. We're still dealing with the story of the healing of a lame man. And in that narrative, Peter and John, they're in the courts of the temple. And after this miraculous healing, they're giving this great proclamation of the gospel. They're witnessing in word. And so we're in that setting as we continue to see the story that unfolds. And the way that we're going to study that this morning is under three Ps. And that will be the three points for today. The first P is that there will be persecution because of Jesus. And I want us to pay attention to those prepositions. I chose them very intentionally. Persecution because of Jesus. The second point, the promise from Jesus. The promise from Jesus. And lastly, the primacy of Jesus. So the persecution because of Jesus, promise from Jesus, and the primacy of Jesus. So we'll begin. Well, so we see Peter and John, they're preaching this message in the temple courtyard, specifically called Solomon's portico. And as they were preaching this message, what do we see? We see the leaders of the temple, they stop them mid-message, they lay their hands on them, and they take them into custody. And we see that in verse 1, that they were greatly annoyed. And though I appreciate how this translation portrays it, in other Bible translations, it's a little bit harsher. It says, greatly disturbed. It wasn't a simple annoyance, but it sincerely, it deeply concerned, it disturbed these leaders, which is why they take them into custody. And the question I want us to ask is, why? What is the reason why they were so greatly disturbed? And we can see in verse 2, if you look with me, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. We see that more explicitly. Go down to verse 17, when they tell the apostles and they order them, do not speak anymore to anyone in this name. So they call them, charge them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And so from here, we need to appreciate the distinctions of persecution. Because the persecution, the suffering that we see in our passage, is slightly different from the way that we think of suffering in general. Because there are general sufferings that happen in the world, such as tragic events like this week, hurricanes, natural disasters, Even personally, maybe being laid off from your job or something happening to your health or your family. And those are general sufferings that happen to everyone. It's a result of the sin and evil of this world. And as much as we are accustomed and have experienced in that kind of suffering, the kind of persecution and suffering we see here is different from that. It is a suffering and persecution that arises from what? Intentionally and deliberately preaching the gospel message. Not to delegitimize the other kinds of suffering as if they're not important, but here we must pay attention that this kind of opposition, this kind of persecution happens because, why? They were teaching and proclaiming in the name of Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And so having established these two categories, we need to emphasize and focus today on this gospel-provoking persecution. You know, I think a lot of us, we can say that we go through a lot of difficulty, a lot of sufferings. And I think a lot of us can relate to one another. But I wonder if this kind of suffering this kind of gospel persecution. I wonder how many of us are accustomed to that. And, and I'm not talking about this kind of passive suffering when you tell your coworkers or your friends, I can't go out on Friday night because I have to go to a large group or small group. Or I have something going on on Sunday morning, I go to church. As legit as those sufferings are, those are passive. The active proclamation we see here is when you actually take the step and say, you know, I know that you know that I go to church. Can I sit down with you and tell you more about why I do and tell you more about Jesus? Is the one that goes to your neighbor and says, hey, you know that I've been a Christian all this time. It would really mean a lot to me if I could share with you who this Jesus is. Do you see the difference? It's an active, intentional, deliberate pushing of the gospel forward. Not one that simply just testifies and witnesses to the fact that you are Christian, but one that thinks of, how can I get this gospel message, this name of Jesus, into this person's life? And it takes words and actions. It takes prayers. It takes going forward. That's the kind of proclamation being done here. And it's in light of that kind of gospel preaching that persecution arises. This passage teaches us that this kind of persecution It's guaranteed for believers of Jesus. We must expect this kind of gospel persecution. It shouldn't be a strange category for us. We should be very used to this kind of suffering. I was challenged a few years ago when I was on missions, and I was working with a few Baptist missionaries, and God bless their heart. They're very well advanced in their age, so they themselves couldn't do a lot of the activity, but they had a lot of materials and resources. And so they had all these gospel tracts, coloring books, uh, these materials that we could use. And I remember one time we were going around the island, inviting people to see these gospel presentations that we had prepared. And at one particular town, I was working with these youth group students, these high school and college students. And what we would do is before the night of gospel presentation, we would go out. Invite people from the community. And before we did, we looked to see all the material and resources that we had. And out of all things in one of the boxes, we find a clown suit. And immediately we're thinking, what does this elderly couple have to do? What did they use this clown suit for? And we were just going to put it aside. But this one brother, this high school student says, I have an idea. And so he puts on this ridiculous clown suit and i tell him you know in america clowns aren't very well received they're a little scary Are you sure this is going to work and he says yeah i'll be fine so he wears this clown suit floppy shoes the red nose and everything i think i have a picture here and he wears this clown suit when we go out to invite people to this gospel night and you know what it worked because when people saw just how outrageous he looked people actually came to us He was making balloons for kids as we were talking to parents. He was being a joy to them. He was making fun of himself, and it was a great time, and it was very effectively used. Now, that's not the point of uh, this story, but the point of the story is uh, throughout the day, we would take breaks, and we would be at the convenience store. We would sit down and drink uh, water and just relax, and as he was sitting, uh, there would be times when people would walk by, and people would laugh. Uh, they would point at him. They would ridicule him, saying things at him that I can't say here. You know, as a high school student, as me, as I was a leader, immediately I was enraged. I was so furious. I was going to defend this high school student, this innocent student who was trying to preach the gospel. And I was getting ready to say something in my broken Chinese. Probably would have been scarier to them, right? But he immediately goes, yes, who I need? which means Jesus loves you. And what surprised me was that this student, that he was so accustomed, that he was so used to this kind of ridicule, that he already had an answer of how he would respond. And as I was talking to him, he expressed, this isn't anything new. This is something that he lives with, So much that he even preemptively thought of how he would respond in such situations. And that day, this brother taught me a lot. Because in that moment, I was frantically trying to think of what to do in that moment. But this brother, this kind of gospel persecution, it's just a part of life. So much that it's not a surprise, so much that he has a response already prepared. Jesus loves you in the face of gospel persecution. You see, Jesus told his disciples, I'm going to send you out like lambs among wolves. Beware of men. They're going to deliver you over to the courts. They're going to flog you. And when they do, then you will bear witness to this gospel and to the Gentiles. And when they hand you over, do not be anxious about what you're going to say, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit who will speak through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, father, his children, children against parents. And you will be hated by all. All for my name's sake. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. There's no doubt that it requires much wisdom and sensitivity in the way you share the gospel or not to just stand on a soapbox and just proclaim judgment upon people. And as well as we understand that at the same time, Are we so afraid of this kind of gospel persecution? This guarantee that's going to come as believers and followers of Jesus Christ. A disciple is not above his master. If Jesus himself lived a life of suffering, no place to lay his head, taking upon the infirmities of man because of sin, feeling all the pain, feeling the wrath from God because of sin, being crucified. If he himself lived that kind of life, that kind of life should be a very well-accustomed kind of life for us. At Renewal, one of the gospel truths that we teach is in faith in Jesus Christ, whatever is true of him is true of you. The eternal life that Jesus possesses now is true of you by faith in him. The eternal inheritance being kept in heaven, a place with no tears, no, uh, no curse of sin, no death. That is true of you. But at the same time, whatever is true of Jesus is true of you. A life marked with suffering specifically one that comes from saying hey can i tell you more about this jesus first peter 2 for to this you have been called because christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, when you see this kind of gospel persecution come our way as a church, as we worship here, as we start making steps into our neighborhood, as you actually reveal that you're a Christian and you start inviting people out and you sit them down to share about Jesus, do not be surprised when you lose relationships when people see you differently. That's not very novel in the Bible. And I hope that all of us can respond to all kinds of those persecutions with the words, Jesus loves you. Amen? The second point, the promise from Jesus. We have a promise from Jesus in light of this gospel persecution. And we have to consider where Peter and John are. Now, they're in a very intimidating situation. In verse 5, we read that the rulers, the elders, and the scribes all gathered together, and amongst them, continuing verse 6, we see Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all of who were of the high priestly family. Very intimidating place. I remember recently I was in the common pleas court in Upper Darby, and I was terrified. I was terrified that I was going to go to jail even though it was just a parking ticket. It looked like I got out because the officer didn't show. I was so scared even in that kind of situation. Imagine Peter and John in front of all the rulers of the Jewish nation. About 70. That's how many people the Sanhedrin consisted of. And these were the most influential, the most powerful, the most, the wealthiest people, all standing around these two, accusing them. They had every right to put them to death on the spot. So imagine with me just how afraid, just how intimidated that these two apostles were. Consider Peter and John. They were fishermen from a backwater region of Galilee where no one speaks about. It's a place where you don't get any educated people. They even say, how can this, this uneducated fisherman, how can he know so much about the scriptures? He had nothing to claim to his name, Peter, a man of trade. No gifts, nothing, at, nothing surprisingly gifted about him. And as if that wasn't enough, if you remember a few weeks before that, what is Peter doing? He's denying Jesus. Three times when a lowly servant girl accuses him, say, Peter, weren't you with Jesus? Don't you know this man? What does he say? I do not know this man whom you speak of. And he keeps denying Jesus so much that he even puts curses and swears upon himself. I don't know this man. That's just a few weeks ago. Look at him now. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, saying, Let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God had raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Do you see the contrast? I do not know this man. Versus, this Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, there is salvation in no other name. How does that sound? How do you account for that difference? And we see, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. I hope and I pray That all of us would want that, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Have you experienced that kind of God presence in your life when you're actively sharing the gospel? It is him who's going to speak through you, and we must not forget this promise. Jesus himself guaranteed it, saying it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit speaking through you. We might wonder, well, what does this look like today? And there are many ways. I can share one way that it happened to me. It was years ago when I used to work uh, in the clinical research uh, company and I'll drive a little early, 20 minutes early, and I'll just read the Bible and pray, jot down a few notes. And because I was the first one there, my boss, my supervisor, every time she came in, she would always be surprised, saying, Luke, you're so early. Uh, Getting a head start on your work, right? And me, I would just kind of sheepishly smile and say, yep. For a few days, you know, that's how it was. And I felt like a coward. And as I was thinking and praying, and I thought, you know what? I have to tell her what I'm doing. So one day as I was driving, I was thinking about my plan of action. I knew that she was going to walk in, And before that time, I just took a minute, I took a deep breath, and I said, God, I know it sounds silly, but I'm going to need you to help me to tell her that I'm not working. (laughs) I'm actually reading the Bible. Help me. That's it. And I saw her walk in, just took a deep breath. God, here we go. And she said, hi, Luke. And I said, I'm not doing any work right now. <laughs> and she was very confused. She walked over for the first time. And we had 15 minutes of conversation about faith, about God. And she left. And I don't know what God is going to do with that. It's not as if she was converted on the spot. But even as something as that, felt the Holy Spirit with me, saying the words that needed to be spoken. That's the promise that we have. That's the promise that we should daily depend on and have. Maybe it will be in the face of opposition and persecution. There will be times when people see you differently. There will be times when you actually have that opportunity with your neighbor and say, hey, can I sit down with you and share about this Jesus? And He might avoid you forever, but there will be some who says, you free now? Or how about next week? You see, in the face of gospel persecution, God's church grew. A few chapters ago, it was about 115 people. One chapter ago, 3,000. Now, 5,000. We must not see persecution and the growth of his church being odds at against one another, but they are one of the same. Through suffering, through persecution, we will be his witnesses to the Gentiles. And it requires faith. Oh, how it requires much faith. You know, this year in 2017, it's a very special year for the church, the larger church, because it's 500 years after Martin Luther put the 95 Theses in the church in Wittenberg at Castle Church. And Martin Luther, he's one of the leading reformers of that time. He's the one that broke off from the Catholic Church because of some of the beliefs that we have today. In faith alone are we saved in Christ It is in Christ alone we have this salvation. We believe that the Bible is available to all of us in the common language because we believe that everyone, they are the priesthood of believers. Some of the ideas that he advanced. And now you can expect and assume that because of what he was doing at the Catholic Church, they are very angry with what he was doing. So they gather him and they put him on trial. And they put all of his books, all of his writings in front of him asking questions like is it truly in christ alone do you truly believe all of these things these things that you are writing of knowing that this is heretical this is going against the church do you stand by them or do you recant and keep in mind martin luther he was still a man he was very afraid so he said uh, can i think about my answer and so they said, you'll have one day of recess, and tomorrow we'll resume our trial. So he was in custody, and he thought about the answer that he was going to give. And the next day, he came in front of the whole trial, and they asked him the same question. Do you wish to stand by them, or do you recant of these things? And he says, and this is where we get one of the famous quotes of the Reformation. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures I am bound by them, which I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot, and I will not, recant anything. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Amen. Do you see that 180-degree turn that Martin Luther encountered? Very similar to Peter and John. Just the night before, he was afraid, he was timid, he was intimidated, saying, can I have more time to think about this? The next day, he says, here I stand for the sake of the gospel. What marks the difference? What did he do that night? And our passage shows us. If you look at verse 13, It says that these leaders, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That's what makes a difference. You know, we have the privilege of reading and having some of Luther's prayers that night that he wrote in his journal, and I'll read them to you. He writes, oh, you know, as a side note, a lot of these people, they always begin their journal entries with oh, or I. I wonder how much emotion they're really trying to get across. He says, oh, the weakness of the flesh, the power of Satan. If I am to depend upon any strength of this world, everything is over. Oh, God, oh, God, oh, thou, my God, help me against the wisdom of this world. The work is not mine, but thine. I lean not upon man. My God, my God, thou, thou'st not here. Thou hast chosen me for this work. I know it. Therefore, O God, accomplish thine own will. Forsake me not for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, my defense, my buckler, my stronghold. Come, I pray thee, I am ready. Behold me, prepare to lay down my life for your truth. For the cause is holy, it is thine own. I will not let thee go, no, nor yet for all eternity. My soul belongs to thee and will abide with thee forever. Amen. Oh God, send help. Amen. He was with Jesus that night, wasn't he? I want us to pray like that when we go to work on Monday. When you go to your school on Monday. When you go into a situation that you know is very hostile. When you know that people aren't going to agree with what the Bible says. I want us to be with Jesus. Because that's what marks the difference. And the people, they saw that they had been with Jesus. It changes timid people inadequate people, selfish, sinful people like us to say, here I stand. There is no salvation other than Christ. Amen. The third point, the primacy of Jesus, the primacy of Jesus. And here, let's take a minute to consider who the Sadducees were. Now, the Sadducees, they were a bunch of Jewish nobles, including the chiefs and the elders, And there's two things that we can distinguish them with. The first is they did not believe in a resurrection. They denied that any such resurrection existed. And the second thing that they're characterized with is that they had ties with the Roman government. Now, if you remember, the Jewish nation, they were under the Roman oppression, But at the same time, there were some, the aristocrats, the nobles, who made deals with the Roman government so that they themselves could have these elevated positions of authority. They were the wealthy, they were the most influential, and they oftentimes, they betrayed their Jewish brothers and sisters so that they themselves could have these places of authority. Those are the two distinctions we need to understand about the Sadducees. No resurrection, and they wanted to keep their political power. Now what do the apostles say? They say two things. There is a resurrection. And the resurrection happened in Jesus Christ. And He is your true King and Savior. It goes straight at the heart of what these Sadducean parties stood for. It's what they built their whole lives upon ever since they were young, living for this kind of lifestyle. Theologically speaking, there is no resurrection. In their lifestyle, making ties and deals with the Roman government so that they could be well-loved and comfortable. And that's all their lives. That's what they built them upon. Now this Jesus, this gospel comes and says, those are the two exact things that are going to be done away with. And we stop here. We can just appreciate, okay, that's what happened back then. What does that mean for us? And I think it's sobering just how much we can identify with the Sadducees. Because what's going on here is that all their lives, they were building their lives upon something other than Jesus. This kind of lifestyle, this theological, this rationale kind of understanding of how the world works There is so much in protection of their own lives, of their ties with the Roman government. And as soon as Jesus comes and overthrows those things, what's the result? They oppose the gospel. They become monsters. They become violently opposed to the apostles. And in the same way, that's us. When you build your life upon anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ, One of these days, Jesus is going to come and say, I want that. If you build your life upon A, B, and C, whatever it may be, financial security, your view of what life should be like, a picture, perfect family, this kind of reputation, being successful, having a life without any problems or any worries, if that's the kind of life that you're building, Jesus is going to come and say, salvation is not found in those things. Salvation is found in me. And what happens with us, as soon as Jesus comes near those things, what happens? No, Jesus. We oppose him. And say, Jesus, I'm giving you my Fridays. I'm giving you my Sundays. I'm sending my kids to Sunday school. I'm doing all of these things. You have so much already. Don't take this from me. These few hours of rest, this kind of lifestyle that I'm working for. What more do you want? And as soon as he comes close to those things, we're no different. We're no different from the Sadducees who oppose this gospel message. They're antagonistic to him. And the sobering fact is, the Sadducees, they are very religious. They were in charge of the temple. They knew their Bibles. They served religiously. And they can give all these things to God. But as soon as God comes and threatens the very things that their lives that they build their lives upon, they change just like that. Because there's salvation in no one else. There's freedom in, any, in nothing else. There's no love other than Jesus Christ. Whatever we're building our lives upon, that's where we're seeking salvation. And Jesus says, come, find it in me. You know, this theologian He calls this idea when we do this to Jesus, it's when we domesticate Jesus, and explains what this means, domesticating the gospel in Jesus. He himself, uh, he was a missionary, and when he was younger, he used to go into um, various towns in India, practicing Hindus, and he would engage with them, share the gospel with them, and he himself would learn more about their religion. And then one day he saw in the monastery, in the temple, all these various portraits of all the manifestations of deity that they believed in. And amongst one of them was a picture of Jesus. Because they firmly believed that Jesus was one manifestation of the many gods that there were. And this is what he writes. He said, Among the gallery of portraits was a portrait of Jesus. And each year on Christmas Day, a worship was offered before this picture. Jesus was honored and worshiped as one of the many manifestations of deity in the course of human history. Now it was obvious that this was not a step toward the conversion of India. It was simply the co-option of Jesus into the Hindu worldview. Just one figure in the endless cycle of karma and samsara the wheel of which, of being in which we are caught up. Jesus had been domesticated into the Hindu worldview. And it was only slowly, through many experiences, that I began to see that something of this domestication had taken place in my own life. That I, too, had been more ready to seek a reasonable Christianity. Christianity. A Christianity that could be defended on the terms of my whole intellectual formation, rather than something which placed my whole life, my whole intellect, my whole soul under a new and critical light. I too had been guilty of domesticating the gospel. Not many of us have portraits of different gods in our living rooms with Jesus amongst them, but I was convicted. How have I been domesticating Jesus? Just having him being placed into my worldview, my life. Giving him certain things. Certain things that I'm willing to let go of. Instead of saying that there is salvation in no one else. He wants all of your life. That's Christianity. It's not something that you can reason with where you can negotiate God with. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, that is Christianity. It is when you say, I have one passion. It is he. It is Christ. He says, it's not an addendum. It's not an appendix. It's not an afterthought or something you do on Sundays. It's not something you take up and put down at your own will. Salvation is found in no one else. May we be challenged. If you're building your life upon anything other than Christ for his gospel. I pray that we, all of us, will repent. And as we do, we're going to face much persecution, much opposition, but at the same time, we're going to see 120, 3,000, 5,000, even the church we see today. Amen? And let's pray. going to continue our time of worship through prayer and afterwards we'll partake of communion together but first can I lead us praying over these things and first can we genuinely assess is there gospel persecution in your life not a generic one Not suffering that happens to all people as terrifying and as hard and as difficult as those are. We're not minimizing those. But at the same time, is there any persecution that we're willing to face because we want to bring the name of Jesus into people's lives? Let's assess that. A servant is no greater than his master. Let's pray.